The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales Episode 22 Swan Song in the Shadows So your family is the one in the story you told? Lucas asked, astonished. Jack and I thought there was some kind of, how you say, illusion to it. Allusion, Isabel corrected gently. Illusion would be a trick of the senses or something that gives a false impression, and I can assure you my family's curse is all too sadly true. So, Lucas replied, trying to be light-hearted, even as he tried to get his head around the full import of what Isabel was telling him, relationships with mysterious older women are all well and good. But are you, he trailed off, I'm not the Isabel of the story, but I am her descendant. And so you are really a dragon? A worm. Dragons have wings. I think so. I've always felt something under the skin, but never been able to change. I don't like that word for you, Lucas said. It's too much like something that crawls around in the dirt. And wings are overrated. This coming from an aspiring pilot, Isabel replied. I'm serious. Oriental dragons don't have wings and they fly just fine. They swim through the air, moving through the currents as if through water with majesty and grace. You are too kind, good sir, but majestic and graceful isn't how I would describe myself, and neither would anyone else, probably. I just did. My twin brother Owen would beg to differ. He's older, the firstborn, by about ten minutes. We are almost identical except for gender. He says he's the heartthrob and got the looks and the brains. If you're almost identical, that makes no sense, Lucas said. And as for brains, you're doing a doctorate in paleontology and he spends his time doing what? Threatening defenseless birds with execution while wearing ridiculous clothes? Yes, it takes real intelligence and talent to pull that off as worthwhile with a straight face, I'm sure. Isabel smiled. He likes gambling and sport fishing. He never eats his catch, though. Hunting is messy and requires the company of others, very few of whom live up to his expectations. And I'm told his collection of Victorian pornography is second to none, particularly the automata and early films. Apparently, he has a collection of magic lantern discs that... Better and better, Lucas cried. He pursues animals that die for the sin of being either curious or hungry, but that can't get away or fight back for long unless they shred themselves on a hook or the line breaks. And as for his other hobbies, depravity knows no generations, I guess. You've talked about your charming stepmother. What is your father like? My mother died after I was born. My father never forgave me for depriving Owen of a maternal influence in his formative years. 
Girls can get along despite, he says. That's why I was deliberately named Isabel. My father wanted the curse to fall especially on me as the cause of my mother's death, Isabel explained. Ah, just like a fairy tale, Lucas said. Me? I'm just an orphan now, trying to forget the horrific way that had come to pass. The screen stayed blank for a few moments, Lucas resumed. Isabel? Yes? Your brother has his mm, interests, but he isn't, I mean, he's not like the brother in your story exactly, is he? Would he marry my stepmother to keep the fortune in the family? Yes, absolutely. Does he abuse and threaten me? Regularly, since we were young. Has he ever been violent? He hasn't struck me since we were children, though he's come very close, which is why I rarely go home. Would he ever try anything else? As the supposed worm of the family, I disgust him. But then, though I'm practically his feminine reflection in looks, he doesn't think I'm quite human, so I can't really say. I think slaying rather than seducing a dragon is more his speed. And that would also mean I could never lay claim to the family estate. No reply followed for a long time. But there was also no indication that Lucas had signed off. Lucas? Isabel queried. I'm here. After your story, as you were dealing with your brother's call, Jack and I were blown away. We didn't know what to say. If any of that tale was about you or your history, I still don't know what to say. I didn't need you to say anything, Isabel responded. I just needed to talk and have someone listen. You did that, so thank you. Any time. Lucas remembered that he still had two boxes in his virtual inventory, one that promised paradise and led to hell, and another whose possibilities were unknown. He'd keep that last one, but he wondered if the first might be useful against Isabel's brother. It was definitely worth thinking about. Meanwhile, Mara was furiously texting Jack. What was that in aid of? she demanded angrily. You set the story on water to unsettle Lucas, you got several digs in at Isabel, and you've let a probably murderous, shape-shifting black swan with iron teeth loose in the story world. You're a great host in many ways, Mara. You get and keep people talking, but you don't play fair. I was just evening up the side. Fair is boring. Fair is fair. And if there is no conflict, Jack said, there is no story. It's your turn next. Make it good, wizard. I'll do my best. And by the way, is wizard one or two stops away from code monkey and in which direction? Jack teased and signed off, thinking about a whole flotilla, no, an armada of swans with lasers. When Jack's turn came, his guests were given a description of the surroundings as they signed on. Each was seated in a swan-shaped boat, which glided on a smooth, reflective surface, like a mirror or piece of glass. Below the surface of the glass, shadowy representations of events in the story, like the dark side of the tale, would coalesce and play out. Welcome, friends, Jack said. Tonight I will follow the migration, if you will, of Mara's black swan, Maria. 
We last heard that she abandoned her grieving husband in his vigil and fled like a shadow from hell. That is true, and stretching out her vast midnight wings, she sped faster than the darkness across the night sky toward the west, lighting in the morning on the edge of a beautiful lake in a palace garden. She found a tree in that garden that was an evergreen. It never lost its leaves and bore cones rather than nuts or seeds. Remembering for the briefest moment that she had been baptized and wed to poor Michaela the rover only a short time before, Maria removed her heart and hung it in the fork of the evergreen, disguising it within a cone like the others the tree bore, but casting a spell on it so that it would never be shed or lost from the tree until her own blood should come to retrieve it. Then she disguised her beauty in rags and began to hum the melody of a plaintive song, even as she listened to the speech from the servants around her who were out doing their morning chores so that she could figure out what land she had arrived in. When she was sure she had the local tongue well enough to be understood, she presented herself to a kindly-looking old washerwoman who was hanging clothes on the bushes near a stream which fed the lake. Maria called herself Maria and begged for work. The washerwoman looked at her lovely white hands and gently refused. No, no, my child, she said, your hands are too fine for this rough work. They will soon crack and bleed. If you can sew a fine seam and embroider, I will see if my friend the palace seamstress can find work for thee. The young lord is ever after finer and finer clothes. I should know, she swept a chubby arm over the extent of her work. I washes enough of them. Maria was introduced to the chief seamstress and soon had a place in the household and all the work she could handle. Her skills and beauty were such that she soon came to the notice of the prince, who vowed that only Maria could undertake the decoration of his clothes. Maria, deep down still a heartless black swan, stitched enchantments into his clothing and before the year was out they were wed. The whole kingdom marveled at how a seamstress, a mere servant, could have risen so high. But they were happy for the prince who seemed utterly bewitched by his lovely bride. Secretly, they also hoped for the sake of the realm and its treasury that marriage might help mend his spendthrift ways. The couple had one child, a son. He was a fine, handsome, and fundamentally good-hearted lad, but often given to fancies and daydreaming. In his youth, his mother sought to control him even as she had controlled his father, the king, sinking her secret iron teeth into affairs of state and working her will on everything. When he became a young man, though, she found this ceased to work as well as it once had. Unbeknownst to her, the boy had found her heart in the evergreen tree and plucked the cone that held it as he was of her blood. Rather than give it back, he kept it in a box in his closet full of childish treasures he had collected over the years. Maria felt the loss, but could not discover where her heart had gone. She even tried embroidering his doublets with charms to make her tell him, but he had these embellishments picked out by his manservant, telling his mother she shouldn't waste her time on such things. Such frippery was lost on him. One day, the prince went out hunting and stopped to rest near a spring in some woods. He fell asleep and woke to find a beautiful girl bathing in the pool. She was otherworldly, a nymph or one of the fair folk. 
and his interests should have stopped there. He saw she wore a silver chain around her neck and promised her many more if she would consent to marry him. If I wed you, I shall be bound by seven such in heartache all my days, she replied. But he pursued her, and in the end she agreed, and they made their vows under the starry sky in the clearing, the starlight ringing them round and binding them as if by a silver chain of its own. The prince took his bride back to the palace, and his mother was filled with jealous rage. Here was no mere mortal. She could tell the creature had immortal powers that rivaled her own. Soon it became apparent that her new daughter-in-law was expecting, and so Queen Maria appeared to be all care and attention. The prince was away with his father the king, and when his wife went into labor, Maria oversaw the delivery of six fine sons and one daughter. The girl and one of the boys were particularly beautiful. As the exhausted mother and babies slept peacefully, the newly designated queen mother fumed, She has whelped an entire brood. Let them whelps truly be. She gave the sleeping infants to a pair of her men-at-arms, instructing them to take them into the woods and kill them. Meanwhile, she had seven newborn puppies brought to her daughter-in-law's bed. When the prince returned, his mother said, See what kind of a creature you married? The prince had the puppies drowned, sharing then a little of his mother's darkly absent heart, and told his mother she could do with his wife as she would. As a fate worse than death, the queen had her son's bride buried up to her shoulders in a dark corner of the castle cellar telling the servants to wash their hands over her for water and feed her scraps like the dogs. And so her beauty and her spirit waned. As the events of the story unfolded, the audience were given descriptions of some of the story being reflected on the glassy surface or in the gathering mists around them like clouds or in smoky shadows just underneath. The men-at-arms were unable to bring themselves to kill the infants, and neither could they rob them of their chains. They spread their cloaks under a tree and wrapped the babies in them, preparing to say that these garments were shredded when wild beasts set upon the children. A hermit living in the woods found them and raised them in his gentle solitude as best he could. The children grew in grace and beauty in the wild woods. One day, the prince, their father, now newly crowned king, was hunting in the forest and spied the children playing. He marveled at their beauty, particularly at how, with their features and silver chains, they reminded him so much of his own banished wife. Regretting his actions deeply, the prince had never remarried. Seeing the children now, his memories came flooding back. Whenever he went away, whether to war or on holiday, he brought his box of treasures as his most prized possession. The last thing he put inside this box had been the chain his wife had worn when he met her by the spring, her wedding gift to him. The box also still held the cone from the evergreen tree, which he was unaware contained his mother's false dark heart. The young king approached the hermit, who was the children's guardian, bringing with him the silver chain to show that it was like those they wore. 
The hermit told the story of finding and bringing up the children, but said that he was getting old and worried over what was to become of them. The king offered to take them to live in the palace and give the hermit a cell in a private wooded area on the palace grounds, or have him come and live with them in the palace if he chose. The hermit said the children were old enough to choose for themselves, and they could choose for him also. They agreed to come to court, but when the queen mother saw them, she was furious and had one of her servants snatch away the boy's chains as they bathed or slept. These she sent to a silversmith to be melted down. Only the craftsman could neither melt them down nor break them, except one that was already weakened. He used that and added some other silver to make a goblet for the queen, putting the other chains away for safekeeping. The only chain she could not acquire in this way was the girl's, because she stayed with the beloved old hermit in his wooded cell on the palace grounds, the better to look after the kindly old man. One by one his newly rediscovered sons disappeared, becoming swans on the lake in the garden, in order to be near their sister. She knew them for who they were at once, and also discovered the pitiful figure trapped in the floor of the palace cellar. She gathered food for the swans each day and took over the care, such as it could be, of the imprisoned woman, not knowing it was actually her own mother, but suspecting an evil story behind the poor woman's fate. One day, the king allowed his daughter to examine the items in his childhood treasure box. She took the chain that was so like hers in one hand and the evergreen cone in the other and ran towards the cellar in the castle. The king ran after her. She put the chain around the captive's neck and the floor of the cellar began to crack and buckle as the prisoner was set free and transformed into the prince's wife once more. The queen mother came upon them, screaming vengeance. The girl held the cone over the yawning chasm that was growing in the floor. Tell me what has become of my brother's silver chains. The queen said they had been made into a cup, so the girl crushed the cone and threw it into the deep hole in the floor. Shrieking, the queen mother flew in after it like a wraith and was sealed in the foundations. The children's real mother, now freed, she recovered her voice and told her husband she recalled the queen tormenting her often with the knowledge that the chains had been made into a cup. The king summoned the hapless silversmith who returned the unbroken chains, allowing the king to restore all but one of his sons to human form. This last swan remained on the lake and became the magical guide for his brother Helias, who became in his turn the swan knight of great fame. Maria the black swan haunted the netherworld as a shadow, never regaining her heart, endlessly circling the realms of despair. Jack ended his story and pressed the hot key. One of spades. Over to you again, Mara, he said. Mara said nothing, but before she signed off, she asked for a description of the cellar where Maria had disappeared, seeking her broken black heart. Moot replied, You see a dark, empty room with evidence of a cracked foundation, long since repaired. Near the crack, you see a few dried cone scales and withered seeds. 
Mara described herself as scooping these up and putting them in her inventory. It might be enough, she thought. The girl had crushed the cone even after her grandmother gave her the information she desired. That white swan child might have a few feathers tinged with darkness after all. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.